If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. The 1970s was a decade where women lobbied and protested, and people enjoyed the fashion and musical freedom the decade could offer. More than ever, women were going to college and breaking into careers that used to be solely for men, trying new things, and even going on new adventures. In 1977, two Yale University co-eds embarked on the adventure of a lifetime when they decided to dedicate their summer to cycling the Trans-America Trail. Terry Jentz and Avra Goldman had no idea that when they kicked off their trip in the beautifully scenic Oregon, that they would be stepping into a nightmare. Today, we'll be discussing the infamous case of the Klein Falls Axe Attack. The creation of the Trans-America Bicycling Trail got its start in 1973. Some very serious cyclists were on a ride from Alaska to Argentina when they wondered, hey, what if for America's 200th birthday we got a bunch of cyclists together to ride across the U.S.? So it took a few years, but by 1976, for the bicentennial of the country, over 4,000 cyclists, many only in their 20s with little experience biking long distances, joined forces to ride along the trail that would take them from coast to coast across the U.S. It was dubbed the Bike Centennial. About half of those riders made it the entire trip and thus began a very popular adventure for young cyclists. Spanning 4,228 miles, or 6,804.3 kilometers, the Trans-America Trail stretches from Yorktown, Virginia to Astoria, Oregon. Originally, the start of the trail was in eastern Tennessee, but as you can imagine, over the years, the trail has been modified and improved. The curators of the trail set up a map to have 12 distinct sections of the trip, each ranging from about 200 to 400 miles. Guidebooks and websites have been dedicated to this trail, allowing cyclists to know all the wonderful places to stop so they can sightsee, eat, shower, camp, or even book a hotel. Between the start and finish, the sights to behold are vast. Among the endless opportunities to stop, the trail takes riders along a piece of the magnificent Oregon coastline, through the volcanic peaks of the Cascade Mountains, through Yellowstone Park, Hoosier Pass in the Rocky Mountains, through farmlands, the desert landscape of Utah, and even brings you close to the Mammoth Cave National Park, a place our Patreon listeners will know I'm desperate to visit. If you're athletic, adventurous, and don't find riding a bike to be one of the inner circles of Dante's Inferno, then this is the ideal trip. A trip of a lifetime. The kind of trip that helps a person find their inner strength, 
clear their mind after a bad breakup, meet new and exciting people, or maybe even bring them to the brink of death. I've known several people that have ridden their bike from the East Coast to the West Coast. Okay, I have something horrific to admit. I, As I read the book, I'm like, this could be kind of a cool trip. Oh, God. I know. I know. But my friend, he was like, yeah, it took me three months and got a car. I was like, that sounds kind of amazing. But then I'm like, mm, can, by about day can, two and a half, I'd be like, I'm good. Thank you can you. motorcycle it. Like the people oh, that invented cool. it actually were motorcyclists. But... Oh, that's cool. Yeah. My my advice is to not do that on a motorcycle <laughs> or anything on a motorcycle, except maybe it. I think, I think doing a small piece of it would be cool. Like I've always wanted to do a small piece of the Me Pacific too. Crest Trail. Me too. Like, Every time I pass the entrance yeah. over at uh, Bridge of the Gods, I'm like, I could just go like, walk just on that like a couple days. Just do like four days or something yeah. or, or even like get dropped off in Colorado and do a part you've never, yeah, like something you've never seen before. Anyway, so I could see the the idea, like why it would people were drawn to it. Yeah. Terry Gents arrived at Yale University in the fall of 1975. As she unpacked, one of the girls who shared her dormitory introduced herself. Ava Goldman was a year older and grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts. As you can imagine, two girls in the same dorm at an Ivy League college had a lot in common, but there was something special about this pair that drew them together. By sophomore year, they were inseparable and started making grand plans for their summer spent together. One day, while gathered in their dining hall with their normal group of friends, they listened in while someone at the end of the table regaled the story of how during the previous summer, they were part of the bike centennial that traveled along the Transamerica Trail. Before long, the entire group of friends dedicated themselves to making the same trek across the trail the very next summer. But as the year wore on, they dropped like flies, until just Avra and Terry were left committed to their summer adventure. The dining hall friend had described that even though the trail was created to go from east coast to west coast, they had actually started in Oregon and headed east. This, they claimed, was easier as the wind was always at your back, and though the mountains are higher in the west, the grade is less steep, so you can work your way up to the steep grades of the Appalachians in the east. The girls began to save their money and plan for their 80-day, 4,200-mile bike adventure. Once the spring term ended, they made money by cleaning the dorm rooms once everyone disembarked from the school. The plan was simple. They would heed their friends' advice and start their adventure in Oregon. But before they began, they thought it would be a good idea to do a trial run, probably for the best since neither of them was a regular long-distance cyclist. In lieu of a regular training schedule, they decided to do a mini-trip. They would leave school and do a weekend trip to the north of New Haven. Each of them packed their bikes with the gear they would be planning to take on the trip. Now, there were issues along the way, like chains coming off of Terry's bike, but they made it to the campground they intended to stay overnight, unscathed, and still interested in completing the trip. Before they even had a chance to set up their tent, a man interrupted their weekend. He kept approaching them, drunk and making lewd comments and gestures. Eventually, they escaped him long enough to set up their tent, choosing to face their door towards the woods rather than the other campers, hoping that if the man came to find them, he wouldn't be able to find the zipper flap easily. Lo and behold, sometime in the night, someone tried to get into their tent, rustling all sides of it as they did so. After screaming, leave us alone, the person eventually left and their tent sat unmolested for the rest of the night. 
The next day, the girls discussed that this wouldn't ruin their summer plans for their long bike ride. They would just be sure to always stay at designated campgrounds where there were other campers, and they would avoid camping close to roads. Terry and Avra returned home for a couple of weeks before the trip kicked off. Terry in Illinois and Avra in Massachusetts. Avery would arrive to meet Terry in Chicago, and the pair would take a bus from Chicago all the way to Portland, Oregon, where they would take a short sightseeing break before continuing on to Astoria, Oregon. During the three-day bus ride, they struck up a friendship with a girl named Mary who lived in Portland. Once they arrived, Mary took them on a tour of the city before the girls loaded up on a final bus that would take them to Astoria. While enjoying the last three-hour bus stretch, the girls struck up another friendship with a couple— Mark and Kathy Rentenback were from Charlottesville, Virginia, and they had also planned to ride the Trans-America Trail. Mark and Kathy were very fit, and though they were regular cyclists, they informed the girls they would only be riding as far as Colorado, close to halfway across the trail. When they arrived in Astoria, the fast foursome had to split up because Mark and Kathy arrived without their bikes, which were unfortunately lost during their trip. Terry and Avra kicked off and headed south down the Oregon coast. By day two of their coastal leg, Mark and Kathy had caught up with them. They decided to continue the trip as a foursome. By day seven, they entered the Cascade Mountains. Avra was clearly having doubts about completing their trip, and Terry was realizing that their inexperienced cycling was holding Mark and Kathy back. So as they approached the high desert town of Sisters, they stopped to get ice cream and broke the news to the couple. They informed them that they planned to split up so that Mark and Kathy could enjoy the trip as a young married couple and the girls could resume their leisurely pace. They all agreed that they would meet up again in Mitchell, Oregon the next day. A quick question. Sure. Have either of you been to Sisters? Yes, yes. I love it. What I've not, I've not. Can you kind of like describe it? I'll for give me? you in a nutshell. I got a shirt there when I went years ago and it said, he said that if I got drunk one more time at the sister's rodeo, he was going to leave me. I'll miss him. I'm going to go the opposite route. I stop there all the time because my friend lives in Bend. It is a little bit artsy, fartsy, high, high desert town. It's not what you expect. So, yes, there's a rodeo there, but there's a lot of art. There's some uh, one of my favorite coffee places, Three Sisters. It's so good, it, but it's tiny. It's a tiny town. Most people are have like horses on ranches nearby. Well, that sounds like a pretty interesting place. It's very cute. And I know the ice cream stop. I've gone there many a time. That t-shirt is incredible. That. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Thank you. The few days they spent in the company of Mark and Kathy had led them to break their own trip rules. They had chosen to camp near the road and sometimes in pastures rather than official campsites. Now that they had split from them, they decided it was best to resume the rules they had put in place for safety. Terry had consulted her bike centennial guidebook and located a campground called Klein Falls just outside of Redmond, which meant they had a little bit further east to ride from their stop and sisters. When they finally reached Klein Falls State Park later that afternoon, disappointment washed over both of them. On the sign, it clearly stated day use only. The guidebook had printed that it allowed overnight camping. They discussed what they should do. They could continue on to Redmond, where Mark and Kathy had planned to stay, but that was 10 more miles, and they only had a few hours of daylight left. Both of them felt uneasy about staying in the park, which may have been fueled by the fact that the pair wasn't exactly getting along. The grueling ride up the mountains depleted them, and the mood had been souring between them. Avra was more insistent that they should leave, but eventually she gave in and they set up camp. 
As the tent went up, they both confided in each other that they felt weird, like someone was watching them. Glancing around the camp, they saw families eating their dinners at park tables and random people loitering near the bathroom, but nothing to warrant that strange feeling. They had considered setting up their tent tucked away near a utility building by the river, but after discovering that there were far more mosquitoes than other locations, they decided to put the tent along the riverbank out in the open. Like their trial run, they set the tent up with the door facing the water's edge rather than pointing it at the park road and the parking lot. They spent some time casually talking to other park visitors, explaining that they were on a trek across the U.S. Then they made their dinner, and Avra wrote in her journal, while Terry read her guidebook and people watched in the park. It was Wednesday, June 22nd. The day was long, and the night would be the shortest of the year, so it only began to get dark around 10 p.m. that night. As Terry sat and watched teenagers goofing around and making loops in the parking lot with their vehicles, Avra dismissed herself to go to bed. Terry continued to sit by herself a bit longer, watching the cars begin to leave the park before finally opting to join Avra in the tent. One thing I didn't think about when I read the book was that for them being from the Midwest and the East Coast, they wouldn't know, like I didn't before I moved here, how late the summer nights can be. Yes. Mm. They're far, far later than anywhere else I've I've been. Uh, And they can be kind of uh, disorienting, I think. You might think it's earlier than it is, you know? About an hour and a half later, as the girls were sleeping in their two-person tent, Terry was jolted awake due to a massive weight sitting on her chest. She was pinned down and unable to move. As she gasped for breath, she realized the sides of the tent were no longer there and she could see night sky and feel the cool air on her skin. Being unable to move, she listened, attempting to understand what was happening. She could hear a car engine, maybe a truck. Okay, so someone drove over their tent. She considered this. Perhaps it was the teenager she saw earlier. Maybe they were drunk and drove over the curb and rolled right over their tent. So she continued to listen. She heard a door open and someone step out of the vehicle. Just one person. She heard no other doors, no other footsteps. Then the sounds changed and she heard Avra yell forcibly, demanding that the person leave them alone. The noises change again and she hears a thud, followed by another and another, and another. She tries to count them and thinks there may have been seven thuds, but whatever the number, she no longer heard Avra. Then she heard the footsteps again, and the engine of the vehicle turned back on, and all of a sudden she could breathe. As she was distracted by closing her eyes and taking in the gulps of air that she was deprived of earlier, she started to feel pain in her head, in her arm. She was being hit by something over and over again. Terry laid on the ground with the realization that she might be dying, but she still listened. She heard someone walk away and get into the vehicle. Somehow she was cognizant that she needed to see what was happening, so she opened her eyes and saw someone approaching her. She saw his boots, his dark jeans, neat and tidy, his shirt tucked into his jeans. He looked like a cowboy. In his hands was a sharp object connected to wood, an axe or a hatchet. She looked up to try to see his face, but it was obscured as if covered in darkness. He now stood directly above her, one leg on either side of her body. She watched on in horror as he slowly lifted the weapon above his head and then slowly lowered it down to her chest, holding it there, hovering above her sternum. Terry moved her hands forward to hold the weapon and decided to speak to him, and she said, please leave us alone. She told him he could take anything. She just wanted him to leave. Then. Just like that, 
He pulled it back slowly, got into his vehicle, and left. Once the attacker was gone, Terry somehow managed to pull herself out of her sleeping bag and stand up. She could hear her friend moaning somewhere nearby. Several feet away, she discovered Avra. She was close to the water and partially covered by her sleeping bag. Terry's eyes searched over her for wounds but didn't immediately see any. But sure enough, after touching her head, she found that the back of her head was mutilated. A giant gash was open and she could feel part of her skull was pushed against her brain and part of her brain was exposed. She realized that Avra was in serious trouble and she needed to save her. Before running to get help, Terry had to stop and put her contacts in. Now, this amazes me. So when I first read this, I read it a few times because I just couldn't imagine in the middle of this emergency stopping and putting my contacts in before getting help. But I don't have bad eyesight. I can see just fine without my glasses. So I never really stopped to think about someone who may not have good eyesight. It could make the situation so much worse if they like fell or got lost. Yeah, if they truly could not see without them and then have to take that time to do it. Yeah, it was that would be it was such a deep and I, I guess I never said this in the beginning, but Josh alluded to it. We read the book Strange Piece of Paradise, and this is Terry Jens's version of what happened, her kind of life story around this event. And I, I thought that was a really interesting detail that she pointed out that she had to go stop and put them in. And she even talked about like taking them out the night before. It was such a like part of her life, I guess. But it was it's such a weird thing for me to think about now. And in, in our cases, like, well, what if somebody had a cane when they mm-hmm. walked or somebody couldn't see? I think there's a detail in there, too, that she had because she was covered in blood. She had bloody fingerprints on her contacts when she put them in. Like she was yes. looking through blood. Yep. Yeah. Which would slowly dissipate yeah. as you blink. But it, it was just such an interesting, uh, fascinating detail to kind of like put you in the moment. As you recall, this campsite was day use only. So the girls were, as far as they could tell, the only people camping there and perhaps the only people left in the park altogether now. Terry considered everything she could do to get her friend help. And she decided the best course of action was to unlock her bike and ride to the next town to get help. Now, there was a big problem with this, not just because it was the middle of the night and a long bike ride, but she was severely injured, including having a bunch of broken bones. Her upper body had been ravaged by having a vehicle parked on top of her. Her arm had a huge gash from the hatchet, and she really had no idea if she could even ride a few miles to get help which was evident by how hard it was to get her bike unlocked from the picnic table. She talks a lot about like fumbling and getting the bike unlocked, but then something amazing happened. In the distance, she saw a truck. Of course, her mind wondered, uh, could this be the cowboy with the axe coming back to kill me? But after thinking about how dire the situation was, she decided she absolutely had to take a chance. She ran towards the truck, screaming out and waving her arm and flashlight, and the truck stopped. And as she peered in, she saw two wide-eyed teenagers staring back at her. So when she woke up and couldn't breathe, there was a vehicle on her? It was parked on top of her. Okay. And, And they talk about this. She talks about this in the book that the medical staff who eventually came to her aid Uh, said there were tire tracks on her arm. Mm. Like they could see that it had rolled over her. Her rescuers, 18-year-old Bill Penhollow and Darlene Jervis, a couple from Redmond, happened to have been driving through the park when they heard the frantic screams from Terry. 
They pulled up beside her and stared into her panicked eyes, taking in her blood-soaked appearance and open wounds. They acted fast. Bill backed his truck up towards the tent, which was now relocated 100 feet away from where they pitched it, and was, quote, crumpled into a heap, as Bill described. The trio loaded up all of the girls' belongings, as well as Avra, who was still inside her sleeping bag. She was lifted into the cab of the truck with the couple, and Terry climbed into the truck bed with their belongings. The girls were eventually taken to the St. Charles Medical Center in Bend, Oregon. Terry had a broken arm, broken ribs, several gashes that required stitches, but after some blood transfusion and surgery to her shoulder, forearm, and nose, she was okay. Anytime she had the opportunity, she would ask hospital staff if Avra was okay and alive. Avra, who had a skull fracture and several serious head wounds, went to surgery, where she remained for hours. Eventually, she made it out of surgery alive, but blind. Her blindness did fade somewhat. She regained her peripheral vision, and the doctor said it would likely even get better over time, but it would never be like it was before the incident. While both women survived a truly heinous attack, they couldn't have survived it more differently. Terry, who remembered everything in excruciating detail, was disappointed to learn that Avra didn't remember a thing. For Avra, that was great. She wanted to move on with her life and never think about it again. But for Terry, she didn't have an option other than thinking about it. Terry's detailed memory would be essential for the police and would lead her down a path that would change her life forever. Terry spoke to police while still in the hospital. Once it was clear she was in the clear, they wanted to know everything. The police asked Terry to go back in her mind and think about whether or not they spoke to anyone early in the day, perhaps someone they met on the road or in the park that seemed suspicious. She didn't recall anyone. She took them through everything she remembered about that night and then described the man that attacked them. Terry told them that he had tight, new blue jeans, which showed his, quote, shapely legs. He was fit, but not overly muscular. He had a clean plaid shirt tucked into his jeans. She had a distinct thought that he was attractive and close to her age. His height was likely between 5'10 and 5'11, and while her memory was good, she still had no recollection of his face. Not even the hypnotist they brought in to try to help unlock her memory helped to put any detail to what was above the cowboy's shoulders. While she never saw the vehicle he drove, she sensed it was a truck. She could hear the engine, and it sounded like the driver jumped from a height higher than a car when he got out. She described the weapon he used, an axe or hatchet. In the coming days, police returned to her hospital room with a case full of hatchets to show her. None of them fit exactly what she saw. They questioned whether or not she really remembered the weapon correctly. She had described it as metal and wood, but she was steadfast. They had not found the right one yet. Despite the fact that what happened to Terry and Avra was completely out of the realm of normal crime in the area, the police seemed to have dived right into the investigation, whether they were prepared or not. They quickly found Mark and Kathy riding along the highway, and they stopped the pair who were on their way to meet up with the girls in Mitchell. After learning about what happened, the couple went to Ben to visit the girls in the hospital while police continued on their hunt to find anyone who saw what happened. They also tracked down other people who had been in the park that day. They started with a woman named Mrs. Gilbert. She told police that she had been having a picnic with her family from 6.30 p.m. to 9 p.m., They were at one of the tables that was sitting west of where the girls had pitched their tent. 
When asked if she saw anyone suspicious or anyone near the tent, she recalled a man in his 30s wearing a red and blue plaid shirt and new blue jeans. He was sitting at a table nearby. She mentioned that he had a light red truck with a camper attached. The truck had Washington State plates. She noted that when her family left, he was still sitting there. Around 7.30 that evening, two girls named Dana Walters and Lori Gregory drove through the park to get to a swimming hole nearby, and they told police that a newer red truck parked next to them. They said the man in the truck followed them to the swimming hole and sat and watched them while they swam for about 30 minutes, but never said a word. They described him as 25 years old with curly hair and a beard, wearing a white t-shirt and jeans. An 18-year-old named Adolf Wind heard about the attack on the radio the next morning, and he went to police to tell them he was actually in the park at 11.30 that night, right around the time the attack happened. He was there with friends and said he had noticed the tent and claimed to have seen a red truck with Washington plates and a white camper attached parked nearby. When they drove back by that area, the vehicle was in a different location, and they saw the driver climbing into the cab. He was white, looked about 27 years old, around 5 foot 11, and was wearing a white t-shirt and jeans. Along with Adolf were several other people, including Richard Sala, William Jonas, as well as brother and sister Robin and James Williams. They all described the same person getting into the truck as Adolf, though slightly differently. Robin, who was 14, described the man as about 5'9", wearing a light shirt and jeans, and she noted that he looked like he was in his mid-30s. William described him as in his 20s and between the height of 5'9 and 5'11". Salo was the only one who didn't even recall seeing him. Unfortunately, there wasn't much evidence left behind by the perpetrator to help track anyone down. But amidst the blood-soaked ground, there was one piece of evidence that would eventually be incredibly compelling in this case, the tire marks left behind. Eventually, if they tracked down a suspect, perhaps one of the people described by eyewitnesses, it would be easy to track down their vehicle and match the tracks to the tire treads. Police were even able to recreate the path the driver had taken as there were clear tire marks in several locations. It appeared that the truck left the paved road of the park, hopped over the curb, and drove through the picnic table area, hitting the corner of one of the tables to the right of the truck, damaging it, and moving it several inches from its original location as the driver arched left towards the tent and drove over it. After the attack, the driver then hit the gas and continued driving in a semicircle back to the road. We have a hand-drawn map of this path in the episode blog if you want to see it. While the girls sat in the hospital healing from their surgeries and wounds, everyone assumed the Oregon police would continue the investigation and put the man that attacked two college girls behind bars where he belonged. The girls were eventually discharged from the hospital in July, and life went on for them. Both girls happened to have planned to travel with their parents, separately, to Russia, a coincidence that prior to the trip brought them closer together. But now, even though they would be in the same country, they would continue to grow miles between them. They kept in contact by letters, and eventually, Avra went back to Yale. Terry took the entire year off and stayed in Russia, but eventually found herself back at Yale as well. Their relationship had changed, and while they sometimes talked, it wasn't anything like it was before. Avra graduated in the spring of 1979, and Terry stayed on through the fall semester to graduate with her degree. 
In the fall of 1979, Terry's last semester at Yale, her father Marvin called her to let her know that he had spoken to the Oregon police and they mentioned they had a suspect. The man was sitting in jail for another crime, but admitted that he had been the one in Klein Falls Park that night. However, when police had him take a polygraph, he failed, not because he was guilty, but because it appeared he had lied and he was innocent of the attack. And after that call, the police stopped contacting the families. Time wore on and no one was ever arrested. You'd think such an atrocious and mysterious event would lead police to an all-hands-on-deck situation where they would eventually track down this monster and lock him away to ensure the safety of the small neighboring townspeople. But there was a reason why they didn't. In 1977, the year of the attack, there was a statute of limitations for attempted murder. Three years. Just a few months after the detective's last call to the Gents family to tell them about the cleared suspect, they would no longer have the ability to prosecute the person that committed the crime. Now, just because the unknown cowboy that hatcheted two girls to near death couldn't be prosecuted doesn't mean that's the end of our story. In next week's episode, we'll be discussing the second big adventure that Terry Gents took on in her life, hunting down her own would-be murderer. Despite what seemed like a lack of effort by Oregon police, there were two suspects considered in this case, but it would be up to Terry, with the help of the community surrounding Klein Falls, to uncover the mystery of who the hatchet man was. All right, Josh. Now we both have a lot to talk about because we both read the book, A Strange Piece of Paradise, written by Terry Gents. And I think now is a great time to get into it because I know you have thoughts. Why don't we talk about um, before the trip? Because you and I both kind of last weekend, we were casually chatting about the book. And you mentioned that there was a lot of um, synchronicities in, in this whole story. One of the one of the synchronicities Terry mentions herself in the book is about how um, as they went home and were like healing, she had gotten a letter from a friend at Yale that said one of their other friends had been murdered by her boyfriend. Oh, yeah. You remember I, that? So the, yeah, yeah. The couple was Bonnie Garland and Richard Heron. And basically she told him she was leaving him to be with another man. And he took a hammer and hammered her throat. And now she was Whoa. a singer. So that was very very violent um but but terry brings that up as like a synchronicity of the story like a hatchet and a hammer but i was thinking like the whole thing is interesting how her and avra like grew this relationship and how they're both going to be in russia was there anything else that you you thought was like unique about that what i found interesting about their relationship was how uh, how very opposite they were Mm. and how throughout the book i feel like there are a lot of seeds but it's never really plainly stated. I feel that Terry uh, maybe was in love or yes. at least infatuated with, uh, with That's Avra. That's what it was. Yeah. So it wasn't so much a synchronicity, but um, something interesting about the relationship. So I went back and looked after we had that conversation mm-hmm. where you're like, there were seeds. There is a part, and I forgot to note the page number. She does use the word love. And I think you're right. I think reading between the lines, she was in love with her. And after the event, she wrote her a letter that she almost didn't send, but then decided to send it. 
And it was kind of about how that emotion has changed. And I think it helps to describe like why she felt so alone. Like not only was she the only one that remembered what happened to them, but then she's like losing this person that. Yeah, she, she was, was going. Yeah, it was a heartbreak. Falling in love with. Yeah, yeah, mourning that, mourning that loss. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, that'd be hard to. I mean, hard to deal with at any age, but especially then after that attack. Yeah. And she was so also fixated on like, why is Avra upset with me on the ride? And I noticed like she couldn't ever let it go because she never knew why. She never could figure out like she was she just annoyed with me. Was she over the trip? She kind of boils it down to like she didn't want to do it anymore. She wanted to go home and be over it. And Terry like suddenly had this like, I have to do this trail. I want to finish it. But I just found that so interesting how much the relationship trained. I just thought it would bond them together, but it didn't. Yeah, I did too. That's what you expect. That's a that's a very normal narrative or a, a movie st- style narrative. Yeah. But in the real world, the yeah. And I, I was thinking as you were reading that, that Avra can't even see her wounds. You right. know, Terry can see it. She can, right. She, and even if Avra could see, it would be on the back of her head and everything about Terry is, is all visible. on her front and she, she has to it. and she has to almost address it all the time or feels that she does. Wow, that's a because really good point. Because people look at her, yeah. because yeah, she even says like, oh, this, like her arm, this is what happened to me. Like, you're right, she wears it yeah, and talks about it. Yeah, people say, oh, you were like, what, what, like, how big was the hatchet? And she shows people her arm. It's, she, that's yeah. so, that's such a good point. I never really thought about it. Like, that almost mirrors how the, they felt, right? Like Yeah, the physical part where, yeah. where, where Avra had no concept once she, she started getting hit and Terry felt everything right, or, like, or at least absorbed everything and knew it was happening. Wow, that's you really got me with that one. That's interesting. Thanks. Okay, now let's talk about their safety rules. I don't know. I stuck on this like door facing. Do you think they face the door away just so like it doesn't draw attention to people from the road? Like, were they less likely to see the tent if the door's not facing the road? Yeah, that seems like a very it's almost a childlike role. logic. Well, that it's also like gives you that much more time because I know I always think like, oh, if a, if I was in a situation like that where you're a little uncomfortable, you're going to sleep really light and you're not going to like yeah. nothing will get past you. But you're so exhausted from biking all day. Of course, you're going to be like out and so maybe the hope was like that little bit of time to walk around to find the the opening yeah, and would, it would be enough for and them it did to work, wake up. Right? They heard the rustling in that one night. So yeah, I guess. The one, yeah. I, I believe though also there, there was Terry like, was Terry ejected from the tent? Did the tent get like ripped off of her? And yeah, it got the, dragged by the truck? It got dragged a hundred feet. Oh. Yeah. It got dragged a hundred feet. The walls were gone. And so she was literally laying on the bottom, bottom of the tent looking up at the sky. Wow. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't know the, that the path that the vehicle took was so was so was so long. I didn't know that. Yeah, I huh. was like hundred feet. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's hard when I look at that sketch that we have on the blog it's of the small. crime scene. Yeah, it's just it's really hard to visualize. I've seen a photo of that that crime scene too. That's in the book and probably on, on our blog. And it's just really hard to conceive of of how he did it. Uh, it was certainly intentional. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about him doing it. Um, you had a good point. So in the book, Terry talks about how he slowly lifts the axe and puts it above her chest and she touches it. And then he g- gently ever quote gently ever so gently lifted the hatchet from her grasp and walked away. You had an interesting point about what you thought he was doing. Yeah. I, and I think that when Terry is talking to someone about that attack and describing that slow motion, because I think she's She's been through this story a hundred times for people, a thousand times. It's, it's the story she tells to everybody. And then this one time, I think she's telling it 
And the person she's telling it to says that that last kind of soft uh, lowering of the blade to her chest and then and then kind of raising it back up wasn't like a wasn't gentle or thoughtful or anything. It was it was an aim. It was yeah. to aim. It was to to make sure he's struck ex mm -hmm. exactly in her chest, you know, into her heart. So just to clarify, so Terry was in the tent. The tent was run over by the truck and then dragged. Mm -hmm. And then she woke up to the truck being on her and she was listening for what was happening. Then she hears Avra calling out. Avra gets struck in the head with the machete or the axe weapon. Mm -hmm. The hatchet, yeah. Okay, so she gets struck several times and then he approaches her, goes back to Terry and then holds it at her for aiming, but he doesn't hit her? No, he had hit her. So uh, oh, okay. after after Avra, he leaves her, moves the truck. And Avra was mostly on her head, correct? Yeah, it was okay. all on her head. Okay. So he moves the truck. Then he attacks okay. Terry, but she has her eyes shut because she's so focused on getting breath because she hasn't been right. able to really breathe while that truck was on her. Then he like walks away and comes back and she's opened her eyes. So she at that point has already been hit in the arm. Okay. I think she took some to the face and okay. shoulder. And then she opens her eyes to, and he's standing over her and doing that. So oh, it's going to okay. be like the killing blow. Right, right. So I think, Josh, you're right. Like, I do I do think that person was correct and that it was an aim. And it wasn't until she spoke that that he stopped. And, and Terry in the book writes about why she thinks her asking him to stop worked and Avra's didn't. So when she described Avra calling out to him to leave us alone, it was very assertive and demanding. Mm. But Terry said, please leave us alone. So it like gave him that power back. Yeah. And I thought, wow, if that's the case, like that's very psychological. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, wow, this guy. I don't know if there's any like logic in this man. I feel like he's acting out of. I thought there may be some logic in that he would want to have the choice that he yeah he would take pleasure in in saying that you live yeah because i let me. you live or having die a, if i let you or die. if he's methodical and he has rules going into it mm -hmm. and maybe he tells himself like well if they ask nicely then i'll stop but if they don't then i'll you know like you never know with this type of person yeah it's like but, well you shouldn't have opened the door to me yeah I so it's like whatever you. rules and decisions yeah. they've already made for themselves hmm. you so never know what do you, josh what do you think his motive was what why do you think he attacked those two girls before we get into the yeah, suspect stuff. I mean, like, I, I mean, I think guess. I think on a, on a just on a purely like I guess psychological level, he seems to have a a hatred toward women, mm. kind of generalized. He seems very entitled, and and uh, he seems like one of those people who thinks the world only exists when their eyes are upon it, and it vanishes when it isn't. Mm. So when he sees something, it's there for him to do with what he pleases because he's mm. the man. That's interesting. And I know in the book, Terry mentions a theory, uh, and I can't remember if it was hers or one of the police, but that maybe Avra had had interacted with the person that did this earlier in the day, maybe at the bathroom and like shunned his advances and that he was acting out of anger. And we'll get into some of the other possible motives in next week's episode. But I thought that was interesting um, because if it was, in fact, someone who likes things his way, if he did try something and they turned him down, that could make him very angry. I'm intrigued by the day use only aspect of the campground mm. that, you know, I haven't read the book. Uh, Josh was 
very into the book when he was reading it. So I do know little snippets he would fill me in on. But perhaps this guy was local and maybe he kept an eye out for people that were using it as a campground for overnight because he knew no one was around and he knew there wasn't like a camp host and other campers around and it was super isolated. So was this two young ladies that are sleeping in the non-campground campground or he just checked it often and happened to decide that night? Like, yeah. But that's where my brain goes is, yeah, even if he, whether or not he saw them beforehand, there could have been an element to that, like, because camping is already so isolated. But when you're really, like, out on your own, that's, you know, being on a silver platter. There was an article published a few days after the attack where it was specifically mentioned that the girls, the co-eds, they call them, Mm. were in a place that was just for day use. They were were blaming them for for it happening because they weren't in an overnight camping area. Also, I don't know if it's the same article, but somebody got a hold of either Avera's diary entry or a letter she had written that basically said Terry was the one that like wanted to stay in the day use only. And so like they attacked her uh, for choosing it. And so adding like, even more her. distance to them, putting like wedging them even more. Yeah, definitely. That that like this wouldn't have happened to me if we had just stayed with Mark and Kathy kind mm-hmm. of a situation. And whether or not that was even in the article, she probably like you would have the right to feel that way. Sure. You know, to be like, I said I didn't want to stay. We said we were uncomfortable. And then look what happened. Well, and the medical staff foresaw that, that Terry might have a lot of guilt over that. So they were like coaching the family about, you've got to make sure she knows this isn't her fault. Oh, good. Um, And I thought that was really kind. Like they, um, they advanced for, they did. And they treated her like family. Like uh, we'll talk about it again later, but she goes back and sees some of these people. And it's just very apparent how much everyone cared. Mm. I've never been, I've never been stared at long enough for that sort of feeling to happen. I've, the I, feeling that someone's watching you? that you that you're being watched. I, mm-hmm. I guess I've been I've noticed like oh someone's looking at me, but I've never felt like I've being I, I've I've never felt like I've been observed oh, like that. So you're a man. Yeah, that's you're what a man. I'm, that's you're what I'm saying. I am a man, and so I don't know what that feels like. Is that like a a, it's a, gross. a sixth sense that it you is. develop? Yes, where you yeah. can just feel it. It's like tinglies for me, like mm-hmm. the back of my neck. I'm like something, somebody's staring. Yeah, and you can feel when it's like when it's a wrong sort of energy. Yeah. I guess it would be mm-hmm. no matter what, but yeah. Oh yeah, it's invasive. different from someone like, oh, I really like your hair. Staring. Or like smiling at you and like, there's one thing if you're like out at a bar and you're dressed up cute and you're dancing, whatever, and someone gives you like a look and you're like, oh, hey, right back, you know, like mm-hmm. flirtatious eyes. To a staring at you while you're not looking. To like, I think there was something just the other day, I think because I ran to the liquor store next to the hotel we were staying at to go get a drink a non-alcoholic drink I'm sure mm-hmm. you took up drinking didn't you? <laughs> yeah and so I ran in and I didn't have my bra and you just can tell right you know and I cross my arms and just oh hi hey but yeah you just you just there's a difference yeah you and you try it. to not tell your try to tell yourself you're like no you're who's gonna be staring at you and like no you're just feeling weird and then you like look again or you whatever and you're just like no that's what's happening well and we've done I always go back to the interview we did with uh, that author in Seattle and she talked about um, Ted Bundy and how everyone described anyone who survived being around him described him as almost having like a flip a switch that was flipped Mm -hmm. or he his eyes changed or he got more musky scented kind of a thing and I feel like that's part of it you can tell when somebody is looking at you with an with a 
not happy emotion. Yeah. You know, like uh, or like predatory, like predatory, not necessarily desire. like not necessarily that this guy is a rapist or a murderer or something, but just he's staring at you to consume the visual of you as opposed to like a glance or something to celebrate. I, does that make sense? Yeah, like, it's hard to explain. Like, I, like it, it's like Josh, like Josh and I watch a million movies and he's a big fan of breasts. And so what? Like, so we'll we will talk about women's breasts in the film or whatever but it's never body shaming it's never gross it's never what it's like to celebrate their beauty of this person like oh yeah she looks great and so there's that version where you're like yay I'm looking at something great and then there's the other where it's just admiration yeah and then there's the other where it's like you're a rack of ribs or something yeah just it's just consuming like I'm gonna stare at your boobs or I'm gonna stare at your butt or whatever and it's yeah it's just different i i hope that you feel it at some point josh so you (laughs) get a little taste of it this is like random things though i'll be like i've had it at winco shopping for rice or something and you just feel eyes on you and the way this person looks like they won't look away like they have no shame and just Mm -hmm. and it's not always inherently like sexual sometimes it's like okay are you judging me for whatever like you can't tell are you measuring my yeah it's like I don't (laughs) like you don't know where it's coming from but it doesn't feel from a kind place but that being said it's interesting that both girls felt it Mm -hmm. but it would be a hard decision sun's going down like they're exhausted where do you go they're not professionals they've ridden a long ways yeah yeah, what do you do? I don't know. It was it was a hard decision. I'll, that's all I'll say. And I, yeah. I don't think anybody's to blame for that. It, no. Uh, maybe no. the guidebook. Fuck you, guidebook. Yeah, oh, yeah, the guidebook. And, you know, it's not like, oh, they put themselves in that position. You you also look at it as like, okay, they're in college. I don't know if they had any kind of weaponry on them, but would that have mattered if someone's driving over you with well, a no, truck? Well, no, because they're asleep. You know? Like, what... They couldn't have done anything. Yeah, right? they could have had all the guns had, and all the whatever. And maybe it have if mattered. they had stayed by the utility building, the truck would have crashed into that. But like, yeah. I don't, I don't think anything was going to stop this bad thing from happening to them. Yeah, I don't know. Was there anything in the book about anyone at the campground or at the park uh, when they were just kind of setting up? Did anyone come up to them and say, "You know, no one's going to be here tonight. You guys like shouldn't"? No, I don't not think so, that right? I recall. They did have casual chat so there were plenty of opportunities for people to be like you know this is day use only um but they never terry never specifically said anyone brought that up but they just watched as they all left eventually that's sort of uh, kind of fitting with the community's acceptance of certain things Mm. after the fact it kind of seems like a part of that also, can two young women just ride their bikes and camp? Oh, I camp? know. And her dad you dug know? into that. So that people did bring that up. like Rules or not, or good idea or not, or safety or not. Can two young girls just go on a friggin' adventure? So Terry's dad kind of got in front of some of that kind of criticism by saying these are educated women yeah. riding a bike doing staying in their own world they weren't even there with boyfriends like right trying to get like they're good girls there's no reason they're asking for a bad thing to happen to them and it's unfair to like project that on them which i thought was cool that he did that yeah there's also a uh a part in there i think where someone in the community or in the you know neighboring community suggests that 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 people in, in that community would think of two women traveling alone like that on a bike 
almost as like being sex workers or something. Mm. Hmm. There like was that judgment was so too. Yeah, unheard of. Or well, whatever. it was such a new concept. I think. Yeah. For, especially in I think, Central Oregon. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was very. I think it was very shocking for a lot of people. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, the people Terry eventually talks to, so many of them are not that way. You know that. Oh yeah. But I think they realize the population that they're in kind of was like that. That's the distance you put between yourself and the tragedy. Yeah. Because then it could never be you. Yeah, that's true. It's all their fault. It's they wanted this crazy adventure. They put themselves out there. They presented themselves to be taken advantage of. That was all on them because I would never put myself in that position. So I will never be attacked instead of being some a-hole in the community is doing this, this horrendous act, and somehow it's their fault because they were in his space or whatever, you know? It, mm. And so it's like if you can say, I would never be on my bike or I would never be camping or I would never stay in a day area, all those things, then it's that that it's less scary because then it can't be near you because you have all those degrees of separation. Well, and what's interesting is they had another tragedy that happened nearby that I... I time so it's like not a totally new concept that something insane would happen mm. but uh, i think you're right i i do people like to distance themselves and yeah and i think i mean that's with any tragedy you know you see it all the time of like well i wouldn't be out drinking or i wouldn't have gone home with that guy or i wouldn't have yeah terry talks about how those sorts of attacks killings were called stranger killings then even then they yeah, weren't they called serials they were they were mm -hmm. the the verbiage alone was like this won't happen to you. This is like mm. between two random strangers. It's, you know, infinitely impossible for it to happen to you. Which is another reason I think um, police had assumed it was an outsider because this stuff doesn't happen. In right. This wouldn't right? be a good a good little local boy. Mm -hmm. So they fixated on the Washington plates and, you know, somebody driving through. Which I thought was really interesting. That's a good point. They didn't come up with the term serial killer till a couple years later. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next part of this because in the second part, there's uh, witnesses and people involved that, that are that are, uh, well, very interesting. I don't very know what to say. They're just I, there's we. Uh, well, I don't want to spoil anything. No spoilers, but come back. But people come week. back and <laughs> they, they uh, provide a lot of a lot of context and uh, clarity. And I think um, I hope help. Uh, Terry process this stuff. It's it's really great. It's an incredible book. It's an it incredible. Really I just book. loved it. I, I I've essentially read it twice now, and it's just it's just an amazing. Well, book. we can talk about that a little bit. I I mean, I know we both talked about this last weekend. It is one of the better true crime books I've ever read. Yeah, it's incredibly intimate and rich, richly detailed, and funny too. It has everything. Yeah, it's incredible. Ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. It's very long, but it's totally worth it. So go read it and come back next week, and you will. I think you'll have a good idea of what happened, guys. If you finish, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Babbel is the language learning app that has sold more than 10 million. Oh, my gosh. That's really hard to say. <laughs> my brain is mush. Uh, Milian, like Christina Milian. Ah, oh, perfect. Ah, Thank you. Pick it up slow. Lose it all around. <laughs> Love that jam. More than Evan. More Evan. Who's Evan? More than Evan.
The dining hall friend had described that even though the trail was created to go east. Oh boy, just read your words. I'm like conducting music over here, like trying not to fuck up. I have to like wave my hands around. Oh, me too. <laughs> That's what it sounded like. What a gomer. They struck up a friendship with a girl named Mary who lived in, almost said Philomath. That would have been weird. Both of them felt uneasy about staying in, oh my God, I'm like losing it. <clears throat> Both of them felt uneasy about staying in the park, which may have and was, quote, oh my gosh, Emily, calm down. Her blindness did fade somewhat. She regained her peripheral, oh God, I hate it. I hate saying it that way. <laughs> It's like how I say voluptuous and it's voluptuous. <laughs> but I'm like, lump sounds better. <laughs> not even the hypnotist that, oh, not even the hypnotist that, oh boy, I'm hot. I just don't like it. I don't know what to do. It appeared that the truck left the paved, it appeared that the truck left the paved road of the park, hopped over the curve, curve, curb, oh boy. Long sentences. Just call me long sentence McGee. I don't know. Like a good thought to have because I feel like, oh my God, I lost my train of thought. Can you tell? <laughs> Moo Man. What is it? Weaponry. Oh, I don't know if Let's they had to leave it in. <laughs> no, I don't want Tilda Jean after me. She's tall too. It's cool. <laughs> Wait, how tall is she? Uh, eight foot four, I think. And being like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm not scared of you. Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid fucking bitch. All right. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my boss. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>